What's up, everyone, and welcome into episode 51 of the Modern Drummer Podcast with Mike and Mike. My name is Mike Johnston from MikeSlessons.com, and my co-host who will be joining me shortly is Mr. Mike Dawson, Managing Editor of Modern Drummer Magazine. In this week's episode, Mike and I will get all caught up as normal. We'll talk about the life and the impact of Mr. Johnny Craviato. In our educational section, we'll talk about the process that we personally go through when we're learning new grooves and getting them to actually feel good. Our featured artist this time is Mr. Carl Allen. In our gear review section, we'll check out the Love Custom Indian Rosewood Stave Shell Snare. We'll get to a ton of your listener questions, and as always, we'll give you our picks of the week. So let's get started. Gah. Is that a good way to start that the podcast is <laughs> oh. episode fifty three? Yeah, <laughs> titled fifty one because this is our third time doing this one. But luckily, they're only an hour long. It's not that big of a deal. Not you that just... big of a deal. Okay, so I'm going to break it down for everybody so they know what happened. Uh, first of all. <laughs> We don't apologize for missing episode 51 on Friday. I apologize. It was 100% <laughs> my fault. Here's what happened. So I had to make this trip to Aquarian. So when did we do the first take of this on Tuesday? Oh, we were so ahead of the game. It was Wednesday morning. <laughs> Wednesday morning. I had already sent you the <laughs> intro drum track, the intro voiceover. We were set. So we get into it, and we're about, I'd say, 30 minutes deep into the yeah. podcast. And then I start this. I got this feeling like... I don't remember pressing record. So as Mike's talking, I try to look to the other side of my recorder, which is where the screen is showing me whether I pressed record or not. And sure enough, I did not. So Mike sees that on my face because we're on Skype and the whole mood just changes. And he's like, all right, well, I got to get to work later. And then and it was just like, I, it's the worst feeling you could ever have. So Mike being Mike, he was totally cool. I said, you know what? Let's just do it Thursday. I'll be in LA, but we'll just do it from a hotel room and we'll Skype. We did it again. This time we crushed it. Podcast was epic. Answered your questions. Got all the way to the end. Signed off. All is good. But me being me, I didn't bring a laptop with me, so I had no way to get him the audio. No big deal. I'm going to Aquarian. I'll just take the memory card with me to Aquarian. I set the memory card on the center console of this rental minivan that I had. And then I put my, <laughs> I put my phone like on top of that because I was using my phone as GPS to get to Aquarian. I get all the way to Aquarian, I lift up my phone, the memory card is gone, and it has slipped into the dash area of the car. And I was like, no! And so Chris comes out of Aquarian, he's like bum-rushing me with hugs and everything, and I'm kind of like not happy. Yeah, and yeah. he's like, you cool, man? I'm like, yeah, I'm cool. And <laughs> and I'm digging everywhere in this minivan. So he, he, came, he came out like four times to check on me, and it's just my butt crack hanging out of a minivan out in Anaheim, California, and I'm desperately trying to find this. Jimmy Keegan from Spock's Beard was with us. He was actually recording the session I did at Aquarian. So he's like, dude, I got small hands. I got this. And I'm like, bro, it's not small hands. It's, you know where the carburetor is? It's around there somewhere. It is deep. So, uh, but uh, yeah, he was, we were driving down the streets of Anaheim. We had just come from lunch. Jimmy is head first into the dash of this car. And just, you just see his little feet hanging out. Oh, dude, it was a nightmare. And then the worst part is I had to then tell you, hey, man, sorry, I don't have the file. It's And so and then Amber's freaking out because she's like, what kind of sensitive information is on that memory card? I'm like, it's like 10 episodes of a podcast. There's no sensitive. I don't put like it's our all banking. public knowledge, yeah. Yeah, I don't put our banking on like SD cards. So she's like, well, they're going to find it. I'm like, well, I hope they do. Like, that's fine. It's not a big deal. Anyways. I seriously apologize. Mike, for you having to do this for a third time, I apologize. How's your day going? Man, everyone that I've told that story to, they all say the same thing. <clears throat> Sounds like the dog ate his homework. Everyone shut, says that. Shut up. <laughs> they, it's so real. Nah. Why would I even want to go through this three times in a row? Seriously, we should be on 60 by now. <laughs> Dude, I, I love Carl Allen so much that I'm like, you know what? Let's pump him up one more time. Oh, uh, by the way, I just uh, I was listening to some Freddie Hubbard and Carl Allen this morning, and it was uh, just it was very like you said. It was the Young Lions. They're just they're just going, just mm-hmm. going, man. And it's it's really cool. I mean, I, I'm sure you've seen it a million times, but uh, the Ken Burns documentary was a big thing for me because. Oh right. Since I'm not a jazz historian and it didn't come naturally to me, Ken really took that entire thing and just said, okay, look, for the general public, here's a palatable version of it. But there is a whole entire, I think, episode dedicated to the Young Lions and just the future of jazz at the time. And 
yeah, it's just it's what a great explanation or a great term to describe the way those guys played. You know? Yeah, so we're going to have to reverse engineer the episode because we haven't talked about Carl Allen yet. I, <laughs> I'm foreshadowing. God, maybe right now they're sitting at home going like, "Wow, Carl Allen. God, maybe they should profile him on the episode someday." <laughs> and you know what? Screw that. They heard the intro. And in the intro, I said, Mike and I talk about our featured artist, Mr. Carl Allen. So they know why I'm bringing it up. Anyways, it was good music. <laughs> Did you gig this weekend, buddy? Uh, just a, a, I hosted like a jam session last night. Nothing, nothing too elaborate. But, you know, I took my um, – I was actually seriously considering selling my Signia kit. My oh. original professional kit that I got out of high school as a graduation present and – because I haven't used it in a while. I use it for some sessions, but haven't gigged with it. And like, you know what? I'm going to put these things in cases and store them. And if they stay in storage for another six months, I'm going to sell them. Gotcha. So I took them to the to the gig yesterday, and I, f- I there's no way I'm ever going to sell them. There's, they <laughs> really? sounded so good. Like in the room when I was hearing other people play them, I'm like, nope, nope, never, never, yeah. ever, ever, ever. And I think my new favorite bass drum head is a Coded Ambassador. Oh really? It just both sounds sides. so punchy, and if you muffle it just enough, it, you still get like a nice round low end. But the, it's so punchy. It just it just what feels are the sizes? So good. It's a sixteen by twenty. Oh wow, great! So I have a coated ambassador on the batter with a felt strip muffling. Plus, I think I have one of those Remo muffle things inside, and maybe like a little tiny uh, blanket. Sure, that's kind of hitting both heads. And the front head's just a regular black uh, ebony with a porthole. But does, it say, it just, does it say Signia on it or Premiere? No, it's not no. Like the stock it's not the right? original. I wish okay. I would have kept that. I threw that away. It's just like a black ebony. Right. But as soon as I hit it, I'm like, man, this is either this drum just sounds good no matter what, or I've got to put Coded Ambassadors on all my bass drums. <laughs> that is awesome. It's so man. good. So, yeah, I'm, I'm, unfortunately, I'm not going to sell it. I thought I was going to, fortunately and unfortunately, all at once. It's staying forever. It's never That's so leaving. good, man. I, yep. I'm, I'm, I'm happy to hear it. The, uh, the guy that I sold my Janista to just posted pictures of him gigging at a church, and <laughs> and he's he's one of the like literally premier auto detailers in America right now, and from nothing. Not like he was when I met him. He was just one of my students back in the day, and he was like, "Hey, I'm detailing cars." This is you know years ago, and <laughs> we let him detail mine and Amber's car, and he did a great job. And now he's got this company that's just huge, and they detailed. Um, uh, Air Force One. Really? Yeah. Like, it's crazy. Whoa. So he's just kind of exploded, and I'm like, cool. He doesn't play drums anymore. I'll buy my kit back. And obviously, I'm sure I can find one on eBay. I want mine back. You know what I mean? Yeah, and yeah. so, And then I see a picture of him, and he's like, so glad to be playing again, gigging <laughs> with my favorite kit. I'm like, all right. I guess I won't reach out to him. But uh, at you least always it's guilty of him and say, you know, my, my taxes paid for your uh, gig detailing Air Force <laughs> yeah, One. Exactly. I think you owe me. <laughs> I think you owe me something. Well, you know what? I can say this, though. If it was in his closet, it would really bum me out. But at least it's getting played. It's such yeah. a beautiful drum set. So I'm glad that I'm glad you got to do that, man. Yeah, that's what was bumming me out. I'm like, I'm not using it. I mean, right. every time I, it's a certain type of sound that when I need to record something that's sort of vintagey but needs to have a bit more contemporary sound, that's my kit. Like something that's kind of funk, but kind of jazzy, but not swing, not straight right. ahead. It just sounds perfect for that, but when I took them out, I was like, "No!" And the front, the front hoop is cracked. I've got, I've had duct tape on the front hoop for like so fifteen awesome. years. <laughs> <You know>? <laughs> <laughs> I'm not so changing it. I refuse to. <laughs> it's out of spite. I love it, man. Good yeah. stuff. Well, you know, when we talked uh, the second time we did this episode, I was an hour away from going to Aquarian. To, uh, we were filming videos, and then the also the plan was to at least learn more about drumhead manufacturing because I have a sound in my head that just currently isn't being made. Uh, well, the sound is being made. The problem is the durability. So I think you you predicted a long time ago that I was going to switch to single-ply coated heads for my snares right? because yep. that's what they usually ship with. They're so snappy. I love the response. Well, the only problem is with campers and everything coming here and bashing on my kits, they just the heads wouldn't stand up. So I was looking for something with more attack but still in a two-ply head. So what I went there to learn was the process of Mylar. Where does this Mylar come from? Is there differences in Mylar, or is it just Remo, Evans, and Aquarian all use the exact same thing, which they don't? Uh, I, I didn't know about coating. What is the coating? Why is it, you know, if you feel an Evans head, it's actually quite smooth, where if you feel an Aquarian head, it's quite gritty, and then if you feel mm-hmm. a Remo, it's kind of in between, but they definitely have different coatings. 
And and so I wanted to know the ins and outs. And then as far as the collar of the head, how high the head goes before it starts to bend into a flat shape, like does that affect the sound? So we went through everything. And Ron Marquez is their product development manager, and it was just awesome. I learned so much, and we, yeah. we actually came up with prototype heads. So I'll have them within a week. But the one thing that I didn't know is that they literally do control the grit that is in the white paint that makes the coating. So does it ever change? It can. So yeah, yeah but the, but they have their recipe. So that's what I asked. Was I was like, you know, there's a lot of coating on your heads, and obviously, if you think about it, who's their president? Roy Burns. Mm-hmm. Roy Burns plays with brushes. Of course, yep. he's going to want a gritty head. So I just said, I, I don't play with brushes. I just like the look of coated heads, but I don't like the shine of, what would you call it, like white gloss heads or yeah, uh, smooth white or something. Smooth white. I don't like that look um, because they were like, you know, they said the same thing you did. You know, you could play clear, right? I was like, yes, I'm well aware of this. <laughs> I know I can get, because the, they actually made prototypes for me in clear. And I was like, well, I don't want to take those home. I know I'd fall in love with them immediately. Uh, yeah. And so... So I asked Ron, I said, but can I get that sound encoded? And he's like, well, one thing we can do is like the white paint that we're using or that everyone uses as their coating, and it's not white paint, but I just don't have a better word for it. He's like, that doesn't really muffle the head that much. It's the grit that we mix into that that's kind of bringing, that's warming up the sound and making it maybe thuddier, if you will. And so he's like, I can thin that grit out and make a much finer grit and make, and even the amount of, coating that gets sprayed on the head can be lessened you don't have to do as many passes so Mm. so all of that stuff and then the other thing was they have two types of mylar they have a mylar that's a little bit hazier and that has a warmer fatter sound and they have a mylar called i think they call it their pure bright or clear bright but it's crystal clear and that has a more brittle more attack sound so we're going to do a combination of some of heads that'll have like a a normal two ply head if you have let's say it's a remo emperor you have two seven mil plies and then the coating so we're trying a five and a seven and the five will be on the bottom and the seven be on top then we'll reverse those five on top seven on the bottom then we're going to try two fives now, obviously, two fives is going to give me the sound I want immediately because that's getting all that attack. The problem is how hard can I hit it before it starts to dent and pit, and mm-hmm. then the durability is a problem. So, uh, But, yeah, I should have prototypes within a week, and I'm really Sweet. excited, man. It was so much fun, so much fun. So yeah. should be good stuff. Um, so other than that, I'm, he- I'm doing a camp right now. Just started an advanced camp, and this is like an all-star camp. These guys nice. are just monsters. Keep you on monsters. your toes. Oh, dude. Dude, I'm in the camp. I'm taking the camp. I'm like camp counselor. I just keep it moving. Like, okay, we got to do this, and I'll just go sit down in the back of the class. And It's amazing. So great campers. Then I head off to Ireland, 21 drums. Uh, do that again. And the one thing I do want everyone to know, especially if you live anywhere near Dublin, we are doing a clinic, and it's myself, Sput from Snarky Puppy, and Mark Juliana, and that's on August 15th at the Button Factory. So come on out. It's, it's very rare that the three of us ever get to Ireland, but it's even more rare that we're on the same stage together giving you guys a clinic. So that's on August 15th, the Button Factory in Dublin, Ireland. So Is the camp sold out? The camp is sold out. So the camp's all done, and then those campers get to go with us, I believe, to sound check and everything. And cool. uh, it's, it's going to be a lot of fun. But the, the last time that we did the clinic, they had their the – the rugby version of the Super Bowl, and Dublin was in it. So Dublin was packed, but they were all at bars. The last thing they wanted to do was watch a clinic. And this, and it was also, I believe, on a Saturday night, which was like the main gigging night for Dublin. So this time we actually scheduled the clinic for a Monday so that drummers have the night off most of them. Oh, cool. Did you get so, a chance to see what the gigging scene is over there? No. we were. Uh, the camp is about 30 miles away from Dublin in a, okay. in a town called Westmead. So we were never out. It was only the last night, and on that last night we were playing. So, Right. But well, I would love to check it out. It's coming up soon. Yeah, but I know that um, Music Maker, the store that is putting this on for us, they they have a great drum shop and they do great business. So there must be a lot of drummers in, in Dublin. So, All right, so let's talk about something a little bit sad, but something we can celebrate as well, which is the life and career of Mr. Johnny Craviato. Uh, he passed, I believe, sometime last week. And uh, it's, it's a huge loss because I think that both Mike and I agree that he is at least one of, if not the premier drum craftsman in the world. Yeah, I mean, to think about it, is there anyone who brought back, uh, <clears throat> you know, the custom shop drums as as strongly as he did? I mean, he kind of created that whole industry. Think of, I mean, 
and he also raised the level of like just aesthetic and sophistication of that world i mean you couldn't it got rid of for me it got rid of the whole idea of just buying parts and assembling drums now now these now you've got to stand up to this guy's standards which is you got to make your own shells you've got to have your own hardware that has certain tweaks to it i mean it was and he's and he's been doing it forever i mean we uh gosh we first heard about him when i think the company was called solid back in the 80s really okay i didn't even know that that's awesome yeah he was just i mean he he uh was trying to reproduce the old sling on radio king at a time when no one was doing that and again that's like think about that i can't think of anything in today's situation where it would be like let's go against the grain everyone's Seriously? using power toms and and thick shells and i'm going to go back to steam bending maple like they did in 1920 it would literally <laughs> be like somebody coming out with 10 different lines and price points for roto toms right where it's like uh <laughs> no one's using those right now yeah and or like, like the piccolo snare like he's just gonna do it bring it back <laughs> man and the other thing that's crazy is like you said he kind of launched that that scene of custom drum sh- drum builders and usually when you launch something like that, then it only takes about four or five years before you get passed up by the people that took your idea and ran with it. Yeah. But that never happened. Last year at NAM, my favorite booth was still Craviato. Yeah, it's kind so of an untouched aesthetic, just total pro presentation. And I don't, I mean, it, you think it'd be easy to make like full kits out of, of steam bent wood, but it's not. And there's not many people in the world who can steam bend solid maple into bass drums. I mean, that's that's been a major challenge for his. There's other companies that are doing snare drums, uh, but you won't see a lot of 22-inch solid bass <laughs> drums. <laughs> it's a really violent, painful process to twist a piece of wood into a circle and have it stay there and not just blow apart after six months. Yeah, that's true. I mean, that is kind of crazy. Think about it like that's a lot of tension on the wood. <laughs> right. And then you just go out and throw it in gig bags and gig on it, and it somehow stays together. But, well, there's no weld. You don't weld yeah, the wood. Right. It's like yeah. I, I don't – it's almost like I don't want to know how it's done. It's like I don't know, but he does it. But the other thing that I think is fascinating, and I don't – I've never looked into this, but – I never really saw anybody rip them off aesthetically, and I wonder if it's just the level of respect they had. But there's always the time where I'm like, oh, you guys are clearly going for the DW-style lugs, or yeah. you guys are starting your company with you, – you clearly like SJC and what they do. But I never saw anybody just go for the rip-off, the Craviato rip-off. You know? No, I mean, I've seen a few, which is kind of funny when you see like applied shell drum and they, they paint like a fake inlay on it or <laughs> two-toned finishes that sort of look like a Craviato. But, I mean – it's it's pretty ridiculous because really the inlay on a craviato kit is there to cover up the two segments of the shell. I mean, there's, it's the only way to make that that seam invisible is by putting a, a inlay around it. It looks gorgeous, and that was his perfect solution to that problem. But when you see someone doing it with a paint gun, it's like, uh, right. stop. Not quite, buddy. Stop. <laughs> not stop. quite. Yeah, no, it, I did not know that's why he did that until you told me last week which was the second time we did this episode <laughs> so see the thing is every time we do this episode i learn something more so i i I, <laughs> I love it but i had no idea that's why that was there i just thought but like you said it's such a gorgeous choice and i've told you a million times that someday i'll buy a craviato that has not changed i look forward to owning one someday i just don't have any desire to own a craviato or a bunch of Ron's snares when I can't really play them. I don't yeah. want to own them to own them. I want to own them so I can play them. You know, yeah. I, I see this period in my life where the teachings wound down. Uh, our new president just outlawed the use of the internet, and I'm just <laughs> gigging for the sake of gigging. That's when I'll have my craviato, and I'm like, ah, Gretch isn't showing up to this gig. I'm bringing out my C's. Yeah, so, I, I was fortunate enough to, to purchase one of his snares uh, a year and a half ago. And it, it's a six amp by fourteen solid maple from the Johnny C series, which is a little bit more affordably priced. I think you can buy them for like seven hundred bucks. Nice. Um, so he's he was cutting cutting the cost down by using cast lugs instead of brass and limiting the options. There's no there's no finish options. It's just maple, and the edges are all cut to forty five degree. There's no there's no variance in that. Right. But the drum sounds amazing and. I was trying to get something that sounded like an old Radio King without having to pay, you know, two thousand dollars for an old Radio King. Because one of the best snares I've ever played was one that uh, Kinky Boots drummer Sammy Marandino. He's actually he was he is Cindy Lauper's drummer for okay. decades, but now he's in, on Broadway playing Kinky Boots. I was at his studio and he had an old Radio King, and it was the 
perfect kind of punchy snare drums. Like what I hear in my head, it's like that's the sound I've heard on a million records. I want right. one. So I started looking for them. And it's like, nope, I'm never going to get one of them. <laughs> $2,000? No, thank oh, you. Oh, my goodness. But this drum sounds, I mean, it, with the right heads on it and the right tuning, it sounds just like a Radio King. So I, I have no desire to scour eBay anymore for an old vintage, fragile Radio King that I'll never gig with. I mean, I've taken this drum on outdoor gigs. I've taken it to gigs where I'm pummeling the crap out of it. I, right. I have no, you know, I'm not insecure about this drum getting damaged or actually I kind of wanted to get a little bit of road wear because when I last time I talked to Johnny I told him it was a NAM, and I told him I bought one of his drums and he was very thankful and I was kind of taken aback because he grabbed my arm and he's like you know what Mike that's great but make sure you play it and I thought that was just an interesting comment like I guess he he kind of understood that some people are buying his stuff just to have it and they're afraid to take it out because they think it's so fragile and it's so precious but the guy was a drummer. I mean, he was a pro drummer. He played on real records, and he was a fan of drummers. He would show up to gigs in the early days and just give his favorite drummer a snare drum with no strings attached. Like, I just wow. want you to have this drum. Wow. So, so that was it. Was really cool because that's kind of my my approach to drums as well. Like, yeah. if it gets scratched up, who cares? And if the edges get dented up, all right, just get them recut sometime. Yeah, I, I don't I don't buy my drums so that I can sell my drums. Yeah, and so, there's nothing there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, no, no, it's no, your no. thing, but but I, yeah, I'm with you. I mean, and even kind of back to what you did, you know, or with thinking about with your premiere, I'm the same way. I mean, I don't own. There's three DWs of mine that I don't own anymore because it's like those aren't going to be in my storage unit. They're not going if I if I can't use them. Someone yeah. I know what went into making these. I've, I've been to the factory. Like there's exactly. so much artistry. Someone needs to be playing these. They weren't made to be furniture. So I, I want to play them, and I, I agree. But I, I definitely think because of this, I'm probably I probably am going to start scouring eBay for uh, a Craviato snare just because I, I want one. I've been a fan of his forever. Uh, I've I've had the pleasure to meet him when he didn't know anything about me. So I got to meet the real version of him meeting a stranger. And that's yeah. always a beautiful thing when it's like, I wasn't introduced to him. Nobody said, this is Mike. He does this. It was just like me walking up at Nam and just saying, beautiful drums, sir. And, yeah. and then he yeah. just, instead of just being like, of course they are, he you know, he talked to me and it was like, wow, that was really cool. So yeah, his uh, time on the floor was always, it was always hard to get a hold of him because he was always talking to somebody. Right. It didn't matter who it was. It could be Matt Chamberlain. It could be Joe Schmo. It didn't matter. I mean, just yeah. to get two or three minutes with the guy was like, I just wanted to say thanks for making one of my favorite snare drums of all time. And <laughs> he was very grateful. I mean, it was it was really nice because he didn't know who I was. He might have been aware of my work, but I doubt it. I mean, it was just, right. you know, there's hundreds of people walking by every day. And I just wanted yeah. to say thanks for making one of the most badass maple drums I've ever played. <laughs> That's so awesome. <laughs> well, Johnny C, you'll be missed very much so. And we all... <laughs> Can learn a lot from you and your craftsmanship for sure. All right, let's shift gears and get into some education. So I wanted to talk about the process of learning a new groove. I think most of us at some point have studied out of a groove book. When I think of groove books, I think of Future Sounds by David Garibaldi. I think of the Funky Primer. I think of uh, Yost Nichols' new groove book. So there are books that there are no chops. It's just groove after groove after groove and creating your vocabulary for different styles of grooves. And in those, when I'm learning that stuff, I definitely have to go through a process. I don't just see this thing and sight read a complicated groove that's using three to four limbs. I, I have to work this stuff out. So when you're working on something new, I mean, do you, do you have a book in your past that was kind of the time that you said, okay, this is my this is my groove time? Maybe or was it, it just was, hit and miss? I mean, I kind of, early on, I was just ravenous of drum books. I mean, I would just buy a book. Get you know, practice it until I could play f- page one to page whatever, and then move on to another book. So it was, right. it was kind of like a, I was developing my reading skills, I was developing my uh, independence, I was developing my groove vocabulary, I was developing all this and just awareness of what was out there all at one time. It wasn't the most effective way for like internalizing <laughs> information, sure, but it definitely honed my ability to just identify something right away as being that's familiar. What's different about it? Um, Maybe um, Rick Latham's Advanced Funk Studies was okay, one. Sure. I remember going through with my teacher and actually starring the grooves that we we both agreed were usable and not just exercises. Yeah, that's definitely that's that book and nothing against Rick Latham because I think he's a phenomenal player and, and a great author. But that book taught me about fluff, where I was like, I don't think. 
I think this was written. Be- I think that groove is there because it's possible. Yeah, yeah. You know what I mean? Where I felt like when I did future sounds, I felt like every groove, even though those were actually mathematical possibilities with the permutation section, I really felt like they they groove. Now there's another option, which is I just can't groove Rick Latham's book as well as he can. So I do allow for that. But I, what I'm saying is, when I would teach out of advanced <clears throat> funk studies, I had like the six grooves on this page where it's like these ones sound killer these are yeah. great grooves so when i bet i bet you and i would have different starred exercises too and i kind of like that my Definitely. teacher didn't he didn't my teacher didn't say this is the one to practice we just practiced them all and then i was developing my own taste and my own interest yeah. and even That's though point. he might have liked one that was a little bit one way and i liked one that was another way it was it was developed my aesthetic and and right. Which is, I also like those books that are just every possible variation, the Joel Rothman approach of here's yeah. every possible variation of, of moving the bass drum one note in a bar of 16th notes. Sure. And then just saying, okay, that one's hard, but it sounds silly, but I'm right. still going to practice it because it's hard. So I want right. to be able to identify, you never know when something might pop up and I have to play that exact figure. But at the same time, I'm honing in on like, I like that variation. I'm going to just sit with that for the next hour. Sure. Whereas when I'm going through the book, I'm just trying to be able to perform it. I'm just trying to be able to do it. I'm just trying to be able to read it and be comfortable. But then I go back and say, okay, that beat's cool. Let me just sit with it for a half hour and see what my body then does with it. What mm-hmm. dynamics naturally develop out of it. What little variations, whether it's roughs on the snare drum or cymbal things, opening the hi-hat in different spots. Where does it take me? Does it does yeah. it lead me into a free exploration of a, a mix of groove and soloing and all that stuff at once. And when that happens, I'm like, all right, that's one that's now permanently in my vocabulary. Yeah. It becomes, you know, a mic groove because you can recall it without having to think of the book. It just becomes a sound in your head. And that's a, that's a great thing. I mean, for me, I have to, I have a couple checklists. One is a body thing, which is let's say that I'm learning groove study number two out of future sounds I play the groove. I'm very stiff. I have a lot of muscles that are flexed that have nothing to do with moving sticks or a pedal, and I can feel that in my body. And I keep going, and I keep going one note at a time, chipping away at it. Sometimes I have to separate the parts. Like, okay, I can't figure this out as a composite rhythm. What is the hi-hat doing? What is the kick doing? Usually I do try to figure it out as a drum set thing. I just do one note at a time. I get the first note down, the second note down, the third note down, maybe all the way up to the backbeat. So I'm going, chip do cat three, four. And then I add in the the E of two, three, four, and I just keep building and building and building until I get all the way through one measure. And then once I get to the uh of four, it's a full bar break to be like, funky primer, <laughs> yeah, like, yes, this is it. And then I, you know, and then I train right the next one, son of a, but I do that and over and over again. It's really now, interesting that you and I have... We we're coming to the same conclusion, but we take opposite approaches. Totally, like completely opposite. Like I, I see it on the page and just try to play the whole thing, and then <laughs> once I get that to a point where I'm not tripping over myself, I zero in on the difficult spots. Oh, I wow, just take okay. the complete opposite approach. So if there's like so a funny. difficult chunk around the E of two, I'll just flub through it and make sure I can play the whole thing, the whole kind of macro. Like, am I just getting the basic groove right? Wow. And then okay. let me focus in on the, the difficult parts. But That's we're still so, going for the same objective. Yeah, and I, I, I've definitely tried every possible way that works, and you just have to find what works for you. And I think as an instructor, that's the one thing I wish more instructors could hold on to is, hey, whatever works for you, it's okay to expose that to your students or expose your students to that, but don't think that's how it's going to work for them. So expose them to all the possible ways. Let me have you read it. Oh, you can't read very well? No, I'm not going to shame you for that. It's like, well, let me just program it real quick and we'll just put it on loop on the PA at 40 BPM and just try to catch it with your ear while reading it. Mm-hmm. And, oh, that's not working? Get, get out your phone. Why don't you videotape me doing it? Because maybe you just need to see it happen. So anyways, I go through all that. And then at some point... What I'll do is I'll actually use I'll, – I'll do a measure on and a measure off. I'll do a measure of the most basic rock beat that you can play, just kick on uh, one and three, snare on two and four, and I pay attention to my body and how I feel and how my muscles are feeling because that's as relaxed as I'll ever be on the drum set. And then I play one measure of the pattern that I'm learning from Future Sounds or whatever book, and I A, B, how did my body feel? And I keep doing that until my body actually feels the same through both. And then I know, okay, now we're getting somewhere. Then the next step for me is – maybe 
improvising in that groove, but do I lose the groove when I start improvising? And mm-hmm. that generally happens at first. And then I just I kind of think, what is the core? What are the core elements of this groove? Maybe I can improvise beat four. You know, so I would do improvise, improvise. But in the beginning, that improvise throws off the entire groove. And right. so that's kind of the process for me of going through a new groove is, can I leave it and come back to it? Good. Does my body feel the same as it does when I'm playing my most basic grooves? Good. And then the last thing for me is actually, and I think we might be different on this too, I actually ignore all of the ghost notes and accents until I have the pattern down. For me, pattern is everything. And once I have the pattern completely down, then I start over from scratch, but I don't have to think of rights and lefts. It's only dynamics. So now I take my mix into Pro Tools and I start mixing every single note and getting the ghost notes right and the accents right. But I can't do that while I'm trying to remember the rights and the lefts and the kicks. Where yeah. do dynamics show up in the process for you? Is that at the end or is it in the beginning? No, so that's that's my macro approach is 100% dynamics. Like okay, so I'm using you know, where's the accents hitting, but then the ghost notes and stuff are are just as important to lead into those accents. So I I, I don't strip it apart because then for me it'd be a different groove entirely. I would require right. a whole different set of practicing. But I think that goes back to having spent years just trying to ingest all the information I possibly could. So if I see two ghost notes on E and, like my body just knows how to do that. Right, So it's just another groove that I have to just insert that into it. Yeah. It just becomes an immediate recall. So, yeah, I don't don't ever break it apart. I think I'm the same on that as far as there are some times where it just happens because of the past where I I definitely don't purposely play monotone. If it's Mm. happening and it's working, that's fine. But what I, I don't do is I don't, if I can't remember if it's a right hand or a left hand, then I also don't want to be thinking, is it a ghost or an accent? So I'm, I kind of am pattern first. Mm. Then I always tell my students, like, I have to own the car, then I can detail the car. But the great thing is we end up at the same place. And you and yeah. I were talking in the last podcast, which is never published, <laughs> about maybe we could ex- assign each other a groove that we wouldn't be familiar with. Yeah. And and we could record that for for next week or something. So yeah, that'd be cool. And and the last thing I was going to say was because uh, we're going to talk about him in a minute with Carl Allen. I took a couple lessons with him, and the one thing that he he repeated every single time. And I used to I used to want to call BS on him because I was you know a twenty four year old thought I knew everything about the everything. Stud. Yeah. He's like, if you can't play every groove at every tempo and every dynamic, then you can't play the groove. So Totally agree. He would, not just skipping 10 BPM, he would just say, can you play it at 80, 88? Can you play it at 89? Can you play it wow. at 90 at mezzo piano? Can you play it at 90 at triple forte? If you can't, then you don't really know the groove. And that was like, for me, it was like, man, that would take me hours and hours of practice. But I'd have to practice. That little light bulb never went off. Like, maybe that's what he's talking about, is you right. got to actually practice this groove for three, four hours before it becomes yours. Yeah, that Will Kennedy calls it fellowshipping with the groove. you got to fellowship yeah. with it. you got to move in with it. you got to go to breakfast with it. And the other thing that I use with my students is the terms of, can you play the groove? Good. Do you own the groove? Those are very different things. If you own the groove, that means that because when you play in a song, it's very rare that you wrote the song. So the tempo is whatever the songwriter says it is. The dynamic is what the venue allows for. So it doesn't matter that you only play it at your comfort zone. So I I think that's very important. And the groove takes on such different shapes. When you take a groove from 55 BPM and then play it at 110, it's a yeah. completely different totally thing. Different. And then um, triple piano versus forte. Right. I mean, your accents versus your ghost notes become so crucial. Totally. And it's a whole different world. Yeah, I don't do enough of that, but but I always have that little little Carl on my shoulder. Like, yeah, you learn that beat at you know your comfort zone of 88 right. BPM and mezzo forte, but yeah. let's pretend you're playing with a piano trio and we're going at 150 BPM. Can you really play mm-hmm. this? Yeah, nope. and could you could you find the core elements of the groove? Maybe you actually physically can't play it at 150, but what are the core elements to allow you to still keep that groove alive at 150? What can you take out? So, yeah. well, that's a great segue into our featured <coughs> artist, who is Mr. Carl Allen. So, give him. So, you actually studied with Carl Allen? I did I, in grad oh, school, so cool. which was which was great because I was kind of past the uh, the stage in my life when I was like just learning technique and all that stuff. Like, I. 
<clears throat> spent years like that was my goal as a kid was to get my technique and my independence to a point when I could just play whatever I want at any point and just have recall. Never really, I obviously never got to that. That's an impossible task. But my technique and my independence were at a point where he didn't. There were nothing. There was nothing for him to just say. You need to work on your triplets with your left hand. Like that stuff was just done. So we got straight into music making, wow. which was where I hadn't quite gone yet. I was still just playing the drums. So he would come in and, and like the first thing he would do would be like, all right, play me Stella by Starlight on the drums. I'm like, oh, okay. I think I know that tune. I think it's a 32-bar form. And right. yeah, yeah. <laughs> But he's like, you don't know the tune, then you don't know the music. And so it was all these little cryptic kind of things. And he would uh, – probably the best lesson was he – he said, "All right, just write me a, a four-bar vamp. I don't just a rhythmic vamp, like not actually music, but just give me a four-bar rhythm vamp, and just do it. Write it right now. It doesn't matter what it is. It doesn't matter how good it is. And now we're going to trade solos over top of it. Wow! And it was it was awesome. And I actually had something in my head that I already kind of worked up for my composition class. It was kind of this five over four kind of thing. It was pretty tough, but but fun." Of course, he slayed me on it, but <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome. But you know, he's really he's he's a musician, a great, amazing drummer. But he really knows music. He knows everything about the history of the instrument, not just straight ahead jazz. Even though he's he's highly regarded as one of the premier historians and educators and torchbearers of the you know the, the traditional jazz uh, vocabulary. He teaches at Juilliard now, but I he came down to. Uh, <clears throat> excuse me, University Arts in Philadelphia when I was there for, he was like artist in residence, so he'd come in a couple times a semester and for me as a grad student uh, two or three lessons was ten years of study. I sure. didn't I didn't need him there every week to say, did you work on that left foot uh, hi-hat independence yeah, yeah. exercise? That's that's the whole different I'm sure role. some of those lessons are still being processed in yeah, moments I mean, in I your still life have right my, now. I still have the notebook and every once in a while I'm like, oh yeah, he was talking about the, uh, the, the power of three-note groupings, like how to a lot of the modern jazz vocabulary to get that like kind of never-ending evolution kind of bubbling feel was they're not thinking in four four they're thinking in three four over four four. Oh, okay. It's always this ever-evolving three-note thing. Right. And every time I see them, I'm like, of course, it's kind of in the back of my head now. When I play, that kind of happens naturally. But it wasn't until he said, "Think of this this concept. Think of right. never ending on one. Just think of it always being this." Where do you fall within groups of three without losing track of where the one is, obviously? But wow, yeah, so anyway, Carl is um, gosh, he came up in I think the late 70s. Um, he was part of the as you mentioned earlier, the the Young Lions movement, which was like Branford Marsalis, Wynton Marsalis, Donald Harrison, Mulgrew Miller, all these guys who went against the grain of the of that era, which was all about electronic, like fusion jazz and arena rock and roll punk yeah, rock was kind of coming in and these guys said no we're going to put suits on and suits we're going to play on, yeah. we're going to play hard bop jazz like they did in 1955 and yeah. it, it caught on like wildflower i'm not sure maybe i should do a little bit more research to figure out why that that happened there must have been something in american history at the time that that sparked it but sure i mean they were just burning hard bop jazz and most of those guys came through the schools of art blakey and elvin jones band and Freddie Hubbard's band, which Carl did, and so they and you were can see the you know with Tane and with uh, Carl Allen, you can see the the Blakey influence of not being only obsessed with technique. You know, right. I mean, these guys are not like fire. Guy, yeah, exactly. It's not like watching JoJo Mayer play. It's very different. I was I was watching Carl Allen in his 2014 Pasic solo, and I kind of had the volume down because I was doing some other work, and I thought he was playing a track. Oh, really? I totally thought he was playing a track. I thought I heard music, you know, because yeah. I, I was just kind of off to the side. And it was, I think I had just watched the Freddie Hubbard video and it went into his Pasic solo. It was like the next video up. And then I, I like, I thought, wait, did he bring a band to Pasic? And then I started looking and then I turned the sound up and I'm like, uh, he's literally playing a song on his drum set with his toms. Because he's got a big kid. He had a 10, 12, 14, 16. Yeah. yeah. All tuned up. But yeah, he and then he turned his side snare off, which was like a, a tiny little twelve or something, and he was playing a song on, yep. and I, I it was just incredible, yep. and I could just tell though that it was like, uh, does this sound good? Then that's my technique. Deal with it. Yeah, young child. And I was yeah, like, right. Holy crap! This is <laughs> this is amazing. 
Yeah, uh, he does have impeccable touch. That was what he was one of the guys. I didn't get a chance to like study one on one with true jazz masters, but sitting in a room with him on any kid. I mean, he was playing on the kits that we were all practicing on, so we all knew these kids intimately. We all kind of complained one time or another about how crappy they were. Right. But when he sat down, it was like that sounds like Elvin Jones. How the hell did he do that? But with an amazing touch to where he could control like the amount of, of sustain in his ride cymbal or the the length of the sizzle of his hi-hats when he would splash it or right. like his bass drum and snare drum were so perfectly balanced that it was just a seamless hum of rhythm. I mean, it was... Nothing was accidental. Yeah, nothing. And nothing got completely like... Like, he never... Bashed. It never. Even though he would play intense, he never. You never. He never hit a drum, and you like your eye twitched. Like that just never happens with. You him. know, and I. I wonder. I, I see that so much in the people that I know from New York, and I wonder if that's a small, small, small club thing. Because yeah. when I <clears throat> when I'm dealing, even if you came to play just a normal rock gig in Sacramento, we have a place called Ace of Spades. You would be playing to eleven people, but the room holds eight hundred. Yeah, yeah. So you just go for it every <laughs> night, you know. And then I go see I, – I watch videos of, like, some of Mark's gigs the, and, like, like – or uh, Keith at the 55 bar. And I'm like, yeah. wait, these are the greatest musicians in the world playing in a room that holds 55 people. Yeah, it's like a <laughs> living room, yeah. Yeah. And so I wonder if some of the touch comes from that, not just I'm going to work on my da- dynamics, but I'm forced to work on my dynamics because yeah. there's people three feet away from me. Yeah, it's And I still have to I, burn, you know. I learned from Adam Cruz, who's a, who's a great – He's not really a young jazz drummer now. He's been around for probably twenty years, but he's he's you know younger. He's closer to my age. <clears throat> I went to see him play with Danilo Perez Trio at the Village Vanguard. Okay, Village Vanguard is like one of the most historic jazz clubs in the world. But it Ever. is. I yeah. mean, you're literally like sitting two inches away from the drums. So if he does anything that's beyond mezzo forte, you're going to be like twitching. But and they don't use monitors. So he, right. after the gig, I was just talking to him about it because his, his control of, of super quiet dynamics is, like, superhuman. Like, I, I couldn't believe how intense and articulate he could be lifting the sticks about a half inch off the drum. It was just shockingly. So he I, told me the lesson is you're playing with an acoustic piano and there's no microphones. Mm-hmm. So if you can't hear that acoustic piano, you're too loud. And acoustic piano doesn't get that loud. You no, can bash I, it and it doesn't get that well, loud. Well, especially if it's 15 feet away from you. Right. You know? right. And I, I dealt with that with Mark when I did the camp. The first time we did our camp in Ireland, and we were we had never played drums before. We've been friends for a really long time, but we've just never had two drum sets in the same room. We always see each other at <clears> conventions. <throat> and we started playing a little bit, and he was going – at the top of my speed, but his dynamics were so low. He was so quiet. And yeah. my speed is actually coming from the momentum of my stick. So I'm actually not that fast. I'm actually using the stick and the volume to get that speed. I was like, how do you do that? And he's like, well, if I don't, I get fired. So <laughs> if I want to play like me, I have to play that quiet. You know, the, Those are the ideas that are in my head. But and I, I, even when I see jazz cats come through uh, Oakland and they play at Yoshi's, it's hilarious to hear them be like, it's so great to be in such a big club. And I'm like, it holds 140 <laughs> people. <laughs> I'm like, come on. You're one of the best musicians in the world. You deserve to at least do like one festival. Dude, yeah. Like just – I would love to see one of the big festivals like uh, – uh, I don't know, one of the European festivals where it's like 100,000 people, Joshua Redman. Yeah. Just yeah. So you just I mean they do have those huge jazz festivals. I have seen those and that's awesome. But it, it's a great way to, to get your dynamics going. Well, everyone please check out Carl Allen. It's easy enough. Go to YouTube, type in Carl Allen. You can also go to CarlAllen.com. Ton of information on his touring schedule, clinics he'll be doing. You can learn from him more there. So CarlAllen.com. Absolutely incredible. And uh, hopefully you'll, you'll check it out. Now let's get into some candy, love, custom Indian rosewood, stave, shell, snare drum. What was the size on this bad boy? He says it was a seven by fourteen. I thought it was a six and a half by fourteen. He says, but, <laughs> but he's he, a liar. He built it, so I'm going to trust. <laughs> you didn't get out the tape measure. I didn't. I think I'm not sure. I think maybe because it has single flange hoops, it just didn't feel as okay. deep. Something, sure. something about it. But uh, it's made by Buddy McCroy. He goes by Buddy Love McCroy. He's in based out of your I think Southern California, but. Okay. Uh, relative newcomer in the world, and we saw him for the first time at NAM this past year. And he had, had a great booth. 
he had one of the the buzz booths of the year. I mean, you could see anybody. I mean, I called Benny Greb in there jamming on a, I think it was a titanium kit or maybe a stainless steel kit. Everybody was just stopping by, and it, it, the drums look amazing. He had one that was like a, he had someone do like hand burned Goonies uh, artwork. Yep, so sloth and the map yeah. and all that stuff. But more importantly, they just sound incredible. So. It, I just kept going by, kept going by, and ended up just hanging out with him for a while and talking. And I found out that he's he's a he's a great drummer, and he's a drummer first. So he's he. The whole story of the company is he um, he just decided to build his own kit because he couldn't get the company that he was using at the time to make a custom kit that he wanted. Like he had some very specific uh, alterations he wanted, and they just wouldn't do it. So he decided to just make his own, and he wow. used it and. Other guys were out at the gigs checking him out, and eventually someone said, I want to buy that kit. So he sold it and then built another one, and someone else wanted to buy that one. And that, and it just kind of became a business completely organically. He was just trying to satisfy his own wishes and desires and wow. ended up you know, sublime for his friends. So now he's a, you know, he's a full-on player in the industry. This snare was stave shell, Indian rosewood, super thick shell. Um. And it was, um, let's see, well, uh, yes, 0.625 inches thick. I mean, that's over a half inch thick wow. Indian rosewood. Indian rosewood's it, super dense. Yeah, yeah. I, I had I had a, I don't know about the Indian rosewood, but I had a rosewood, a Gretsch rosewood snare. They they were doing, for a while, the the renowns would come out in just a specific wood. So right. they have, yeah. and I had the rosewood snare from that. And it was, it was a loud, it was a loud drum. Had a lot. It cut through really well, uh, but it was still really responsive. So, do you know where this thing is, cost wise? <clears throat> I don't know the exact price of this drum because it was a one-off. It's actually okay. one of his personal drums. That, um, oh, nice. He mentioned that this is one that he probably would never sell, but he you know happily okay. make one for someone else if sure. they want it. But it's it's a beautiful drum. It has distressed single flange hoops on it. His badge is is. Oh, pretty it's top notch. <laughs> it's a art. big old shield badge. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, I mean, it was as I expected with Rosewood. I expected a lot of cut, a lot of power, but yeah, he had he had detailed it enough to where you can get a lot of low volume sensitivity. I mean, it was um, it was definitely a, a drum with some serious mojo. It had the best like super tight sound that I think I've played in twelve really? years of, of reviewing drums. Just really. It had that like it. I felt like Chris Lord Alge had mixed the drum sound as I was playing it. It just had that punchy, thick crack wow. without it being like choked and like ear piercing. Super high, and I never tune drums that way. But this one I was like, I this drum needs to be tuned this way. Oh, but on so the cool. same time, you could detune it all the way, put a little bit of muffling on it, and it sounded like you know the the fattest '80s you know <laughs> drum ever made. So. He definitely spends a lot of time detailing every drum to make sure they do everything. So it's not a one-trick pony type drum. Sure, I loved it. Um, like I said, I don't think he's ever going to sell it because he uses it in the studio all the time. But he will. He definitely would make one for anyone who wanted to to check it out. He uses Pure Sound wires, Coded Ambassador head, Trick Throw Off. So all the nice. high end stuff. Brass tube awesome. lugs. Well, let's give it a listen. It's time to get to some listener questions. Guys, thanks so much for all of your questions. Remember, you're more than welcome to keep sending in the audio questions as well. It really gives us a, a cool nuance to be able to hear you guys' questions, hear your voice, and uh, and it makes us feel even closer to you guys. So you can always send those in to mdinfo at moderndrummer.com, and you can keep sending your text questions as well. So what do we got, bud? First one is coming in from Craig Thatcher, who sent this in a while ago. So I apologize to Craig. He's 
this was a difficult question to research, mainly because I, I couldn't really find a good answer for him. But he is saying um, he's been a teacher for 30 years, and he's confused why snare stands only go up high and never low enough for younger students. Um, so he's saying that an average stand with a 6.5 by 14 snare ends up putting the drum under the chin of a, of a young student when they're sitting <laughs> on the throne. So Sure. He want to know if if we knew of any or why we think this isn't available, why there aren't super low stands. Um, the only thing I could find was that some of the companies started making snare stands for their super deep drums, like their 8x14s, so it takes them down another inch or so. And, and Tama has one, the Rode Pro HS80 Low. It goes down, they don't actually tell you. Oh, yeah, it goes down to 15 and 3 sixteenths. That That's might be low, low enough. Yeah. Uh, and then Pearl has one, the S930D. That one I don't have specs on, but it's probably the same. But they were designed for deep drums, not for kids. So they're, they're kind of heavy double brace stands. Right. Well, the other thing um, you can do, too, I mean, if, if you had that stand... With a piccolo snare, it's going to bring it down even another couple inches. So yeah, six and a half by fourteen well. is probably too deep for for a young student. Yeah. That would be yeah. the first thing. Yeah, yeah, and then you can always angle it towards them, but it depends on the age too. I I know that when I was when I owned the drum lab, we had parents all the time that would bring their three year olds in or wanted to, and I was like, man, I first of all, I don't think your child can retain this information for a week at a time. Not to mention they can't reach anything. I mean, I'm happy to teach them just basic technique. And if anything, I guess I'm kind of babysitting your kid for a half an hour. But, I mean, even a five-year-old had problems reaching the pedals because sometimes Mm -hmm. the thrones don't go low enough. So I know that at the drum lab, we actually went out and bought a children's drum set or a child's drum set. uh, And it was like, okay, that's always going to be in the back room. Any of our teachers that have someone five or under are going to use that room for that lesson for that that day because we just couldn't get a professional level drum set low enough no matter what what, we did. Was, what did the kid include did it have our actual hi-hat yeah yeah it had like the little uh, 10 inch kind of janky hi-hat thing yeah. but it yeah it was it was i don't know who made it but it was a toy drum set but it it all functioned mm-hmm. and so it was fine i mean we would spend a lot of time on the practice pad and whatnot, but then, and that was like for, like I said, for three, four, and five year olds, and then it became a graduation thing. And then we did have a bop kit that also became like our young person's kit. It, it was like five to twelve year on the bop kit, but it was yeah. all muffled. It wasn't a jazz kit at all. It was just a smaller drum set. So yeah, interesting. Yeah, but you could definitely check out uh, Questlove. Actually, has um, or Ludwig makes the Breakbeats kit now in a child's kit as well. Oh right, yeah. So you could get that, and that that might be a, another option as well. And, and that that kit is probably about as affordable as a double braced snare stand. So <laughs> yeah, I think exactly. you just get a, get a whole new drum set. <laughs> awesome. <True. laughs> All right, what's next? All right, this next one comes from Grant. He um, he's been drumming for ten years. He's a music teacher and performer. He's always been obsessed with drums until recently. He has no desire to practice or perform. It seems that the fire or passion for drumming has been snuffed out. He wants to know if we've ever been in this situation, and do we have any tips or suggestions that could perhaps rekindle the desire to be the best musician that I could. This is Grant from South Africa. Wow. Well, that's awesome. What about you, bud? Um, I think I... I go. I shed my confidence probably once every three or four weeks, where I yeah. just yep. go back to being completely raw. And like even this morning, I because this is take three of the episode. So <laughs> shut up! Don't remind me. <laughs> I uh, went back down to my my studio to try to recreate what I had experienced <laughs> when we talked a few days ago, and when. you were on like cloud nine about your drumming. <laughs> So wait, are you now? Are you down? Because you were killing it, like on, on Thursday when we did this podcast. You were the man. I got to tell you, man, that I this morning was weird. Really? Yeah, I put on the exact same patch because what I was doing was I, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm working on a couple more little mini lessons for for my social media, and I had one that like Thursday was it just clicked like that's it. I've already got it. I've got it mastered. I just need to record it on Monday. So I came went down to the kit today. Turned on the exact same loop on my sequencer, exact same tempo, exact same kit, exact same lighting, and I just, it was like, 
this is not the same thing. Something's wrong. I'm not playing the same stuff. Like somewhere I'm forgetting a note or I'm forgetting a variation or something just isn't wrong. And I got hit with a pretty serious sense of anxiety. Really? Like what the hell just happens? Like what am I doing? Like that's wow. never going to translate. That's never going to work. It took me until about a half hour ago to be like, oh, I'm not shaky anymore. Like it, it literally stirred me to the point of like, how does that happen? Like, if I would have recorded mm-hmm. it on Thursday, would it have been good? Well, yeah, <laughs> or was it just me fooling myself? Or no, yeah, yeah. yeah. I'm- it was. So it happens. I think it's. I don't know. if I would have to talk to some biophysical someone who knows what happens with your sh- like. When do you shed your confidence cells? Is that like a seven week cycle when your brain just <laughs> sheds all those hormones and stuff? Because it was back yeah. To- Oh, that's I'm so back funny. today of just like, oh, I don't know what the F I'm doing. <laughs> I'm the worst drummer that's ever lived, and I'm just going to fold up shop. But my yeah. only suggestion is I know I'm going to go back down there tonight, and it's going to feel better. Exactly. I'm going to do it again tomorrow, and it's either it's going to feel better or I'm going to discover a different variation that I like better. Yeah. Well, I think the other th- part of this is you and I definitely both go through that, and it's very rare to find a drummer or a musician or an artist that doesn't go through that. But more important to his question about losing the fire, that's a scary thing. Thinking you suck is one thing, and, and I think we all go through that all the time. But when you actually don't have the desire to play, that's a scary thing. That's yeah. when it's like, uh-oh. I've always, I've always thought I sucked, but I always wanted to play. I always wished, And I only thought I sucked because I wish I was better. Yeah. And my brain, the, my drummer brain is always developing at about a, two years ahead of my body. So the reason I always think I suck is because I can think – I can, I have a clear picture in my head of what I want to be. And as soon as I get there, my brain has moved on to the next year. And Mm -hmm. so I I never catch up with my body never catches up with my brain. But when you just say, I really don't care to play anymore, that's a a scary thing. And you have to know that that cycle, I think comes along much less, maybe once every few years, maybe once a decade. And when it does, it's very scary because you've put so much of your life into this. All I can tell you is I, I told Mike this uh, the second time we recorded the podcast. Uh, I got there last week. Uh, So for the first time, God, since maybe being a kid, I actually got to the point that I thought, I think I'm kind of done trying to get better at this instrument because it's just not working out. Every, Every time I got to the kit, I was really unhappy with everything that I was playing. It felt like everything I played, I'd played a million times in a row. And I didn't even have anything on the horizon that I was working on, so there was nothing for me to look forward to. And I just thought, you know what? I have a, a great career teaching. My skills are at a level where I can teach the people that have a big enough distance behind me in the timeline. So I'm just going to work on my explanations. I'm kind of done drumming. I just don't, I'm just sick of having every time I play a beat, I've got Steve Jordan on one shoulder just saying, it, eh, that's not tight enough. And then as soon as I tighten up that beat, I've got. Thomas Lang on the other shoulder saying, like, uh, you could do more than that. And then as soon as I start doing more, then Virgil's like, that's still not enough either. And then when I finally get that going, then, you know, Dennis Chambers is on my shoulder going, like, dude, you're not even telling a story. And it was like, you know what? Screw all you demons. I don't want to deal with you anymore. So what I did was I just kind of told Amber, like, I'm kind of, I think I'm kind of done with the drum thing. (laughs) And I started watching this show uh, that we'll get into later, but it was a, a docu docu series. So a, a docu series is a documentary that can be repeated as long as you just change out the main people involved. But the series, you can create a series out of it. So I wa- started watching this docu series, and these were true artists, and they they don't care about what anyone else thinks about them. They keep their head down and they forge their own path, and they're trying to. They're only battling with themselves. And so what I what I would say to you is that sometimes you might need to look outside the music world to find your inspiration because I found my inspiration in something that's not even remotely related to music. And it really freed me up. I went down to Aquarian and uh, I didn't really practice my solo at all. I knew they were going to film me and it was so fun. I just sat yeah. on and played drum set. Yeah. I didn't think about what is Mike Dawson going to think of this? What is Thomas Lang going to think? Is this... Am I in time? Should I play to a metronome? I literally just played drum set, yeah. and and I didn't I didn't even ask like, hey, can I hear back? Can I see the footage back? I was like, cool, chop it up. Let me know. Let me know when it's out. I don't care. And it was nice. such a free feeling. I, I haven't felt like that in years. Yeah. And I definitely it wasn't cocky. I wasn't like, well, that was badass. It was it was more like that's exactly what it was. That's who I am right now. And 
that was a good snapshot of who I am, you mm. know. And so, yeah, it was it was it was very nice. So, uh, so hopefully you can take that and just know that you also might need to just take a break. Yes. Sometimes taking a break is the best thing you can do, man. Yeah, I think it, it, especially for me, there's there's just been some silly stuff, personal stuff that went on the past week with my air conditioner going out and all this stuff that I think you got to look at your life. If I mean, your art reflects life, so if your art is is kind of stressed out and and uninspired then your life is probably stressed out and uninspired so maybe just take a look at what's going on in in your personal life around you and and try to resolve that stuff first and not worry about your drumming even if it's something minor like simple stuff like like your air conditioning going out yeah like your air conditioning going out or or money troubles whatever it could be you just have to say okay that is clearly influencing my passion for this art and you can't force it you need yeah. to live life. You need to take care of your life. I mean, if you read up on ancient uh, theories of, like, chakras and stuff, you've got to take care of your security and your safety first. You've got to take care of it. I mean, if you don't take care of that, you're never going to get to the higher levels of creativity and expression. So you have to make sure you're balanced with your safety and your security, and then make sure, then that'll feed into the passionate side of your life, and that'll feed into the side where you experience control and power and then you finally get to love, and then you finally get to creativity. I mean, it's a big process that you have to work through on a daily level, probably hour to hour, to feel like yeah. you can just be fully expressive. I mean, the people who are just at that high level, they're, they got their lives in a, just an amazing order that, I mean, most people just, just can't achieve that. We have daily stresses. We have bills to pay. We have family obligations. We have you know, deadlines. Sick, yes, deadlines and sick relatives and whatever might come up. So... Give yourself a, just a breather. Take a yeah, day. Buddy. Take a week. Take a month. Uh, and just go listen, play for fun or whatever you need to do. Listen to the podcast. Listen just, to the podcast. We'll keep you in the loop. You'll know if something crazy happened, you know? Uh, yeah. So if we report, like, Pearl Drums has just turned into a motorcycle company, at least you'll know. <laughs> you'll hear it here first. All just right, know that Mike ruined the podcast. Just just remind yourself. Mike ruined and, the podcast. Exactly. <laughs> And remember that you don't know which Mike ruined it. It was just Mike, but you you decide who that is. And he might have ruined it twice in a row. This is take three. All right, let's get to our picks of the week. So what is your pick of the week this time, my friend? Uh, well, i got to stick with the same one I picked four oh, days ago, even though it didn't work for me today. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, I have an old roll, uh, boss. It's not rolling. It's a boss DR5 Dr. Rhythm section. That whenever I just don't feel like practicing anything specific, I just turn it on, I mute the drums, I mute everything but the bass, and then I just scroll through. Because it comes with you know maybe a couple hundred just really kind of cheesy preset sequences and stuff. So I just Man, flip I the so dial and might end up on machine. the heavy metal track, it might end up on uh-huh. a fusion track. Hit the tempo dial, just spin it to whatever, and just hit play and just go with it. Dude, I'm looking at it right now because this was like the first drum machine that I ever owned, <laughs> yeah. and or programming unit. I mean, does it have outs? How do you even get sound out of it? Do you just yeah, rub it got, on your? It's phone? got a right and a left out, and it's got a headphone <laughs> out, and it's got MIDI. I mean, it's that's awesome. Know? No, I, yeah. I had that exact one, the DR5. I mean, even the manual. I remember that manual because I had to learn how to use this thing. Uh, it's awesome. It's you know, so you, weird. You can get it's these for like piece. 60, 70 bucks. Yeah, I mean, it's good to just not have to worry about your laptop, not have to worry about your iPad or your iPhone or Ableton Live. I mean, just turn this silly thing on and just hit start, and it's going to be yeah. – you're going to find something new because it's so kind of cheesy and goofy. And, and it, puts up, you, it just puts you in an environment to start creating. Yeah, know? and I run it through uh, guitar pedals and stuff, so it kind of softens the corniness of it a little bit. Right, put sure. some delay on it, put some reverb on it, and all of a sudden it creates this whole atmosphere of more like ambient music. I just jammed to that. I almost always find some sort of inspiration, except for this morning because I was trying to force it. But I almost always find. Oh my some goodness! Sort of- so funny. Just I mean, the difference between when we talked on Thursday, <laughs> and you're like, I just went in. I was in the zone, man. I was yeah. Just- kind of impressed to how good i am and then yeah. today you know you were not cocky at all but uh, <laughs> it is funny how much we can just kind of dip and dive with the way we feel about our own art it's yeah it's unbelievable exactly. just a few days later very cool we'll definitely check that out because like i said it's super affordable i mean you can find it used for 60 70 bucks you can probably find a new one for 100 bucks but yeah I, I had one for sure well my pick like i said it got me out of my rut and it is the docuseries on netflix called chef's table so chef's table is not 
a cooking competition show. It is a documentary series on the greatest chefs in the world and their stories, the dishes they create, and it is shot... I would assume the budget for each episode is very similar to the budget for a small movie. It's unbelievably shot and edited, and the storytelling is just incredible. But the main thing that I found was these guys aren't looking around and mentioning other chefs and mentioning other restaurants and trying to keep up with people. They, they're they just forging their own path, and it's just a really, really inspiring thing. And I, I know that most of you out there just won't take the advice to watch episode one, but just do it. It will change. There's so many things. Like one of the greatest <clears throat> dishes that this chef Massimo in episode one has is is a mistake. It he was getting ready to serve. Uh, he had two lemon tarts left to serve to and his clientele. It's a very expensive restaurant. They had two left, and his sous chef dropped one of them. And there and these things you don't make another one. They, they were made. This is the last two. And so Massimo looked at it and he said, "Hold on, hold on." Look at that. That is beautiful. And they recreated the dropped one on the second plate and then renamed the menu the next week. And it, on the menu, it says, oops, I dropped the lemon tart. And that's and it's <laughs> it's splattered all over the plate, but it's splattered perfectly each time. And it became a huge dessert for them. And so there's things in drumming where it's like that was a train wreck. And it's like not if I repeated it. It was actually a yeah. brilliant moment in time. And so there are so <laughs> many things that you can pick up from this show. It's called Chef's Table. They have seasons one and two. So definitely check it out. And I, I sent you, I think, the preview of season two. And you can just see it's they go to the locations. It's incredible. Yeah, I mean, the idea of art for art's sake is becoming so forgotten in our current society. Mm-hmm. And it's sometimes you just got to make stuff and not worry about if you're going to sell it or market it or what are you going to name it or what are you going to yeah. call it or who's going to buy it. Just just make something. I agree. And you'll learn so much. I mean, you know, these some of these guys own their own farms because they cannot cook with someone else's ingredients. They don't want the, to lose the flavor. So they're... They have their own farms where they're growing all of their own vegetables. They have their own livestock just to provide their restaurant with the ingredients they need. I mean, that's mm. that's insane, you know. And actually, it's funny. That's Buddy Love just going. You know what? Screw it. I'll make the drum. Yeah, if you won't exactly. make it to my specs, I'll make it. So there's so many parallels that you can draw from Chef's Table to drumming, and maybe that'll get some of you guys out of a rut and just realize it's time for you to put your head down, stop looking around like I was doing, and just forge your own path. So. Everyone enjoy that. All right, buddy. Well, uh, I'm going to take this memory card and shove it right in my computer. Oh, last thing. So people do listen to the podcast. Do you remember me making fun of uh, colored drumsticks because they marked up my drums? Yes. One of the campers brought me these pink Vic Firth 5As. Oh, they're going to look pretty all over your transition ride. (laughs) <laughs> oh my god! And they're not even like hot pink; they're like Pepto Bismol pink. <laughs> but uh, so Do they like, smell hey. like peppermint or something. <laughs> they smell like buttered ass, but that's <laughs> probably just my hands. But uh, he, he was—he's uh, like, "Hey man, I know how much you love painted sticks, so I stopped by Bentley's Drum Shop on the way here and picked uh. you these up." And I was like, "Awesome, awesome! Look, <laughs> I would have taken a bottle of green tea, but this is even better." So, thanks for listening to the podcast, guys. If you get a chance, please stop by wherever you're listening to this and give us a rating and a review that helps other people find this podcast and that is the goal of this podcast is to keep people in the loop for now i'm going to make sure that this file makes its way to mike and we will see you guys next time see ya